Blog Talk Radio. And here we go. Fairness Radio with Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. here at Blog Talk Radio. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, coming in from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good, Chuck. And I, I you sound uh, very ebullient today. Really? Yeah. Oh, my. Lots of energy. Must be the uh, the Barton Apple. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> which 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 is a great segue into uh, a, a commercial, right? That's right. Barton Publications, uh, our sponsor. Uh, they uh, have various health remedies for uh, just about everything at this point. And uh, by tomorrow, our website will have a nice big Barton uh, logo on it. You can click on the the logo, and it'll take you right to. Uh, www.bartonpublishing.com where you can you can order uh, books and information uh, that you can use to manage your health without uh, expensive or toxic drugs and of course don't forget fairness as the coupon code you put in fairness in the coupon code box and you get a, a discount Barton Publishing thank you Patrick thank you um, <laughs> I, I did a little research last night on the business of mandatory drug testing for unemployment benefits mm-hmm this is an issue that you compare to the housing foreclosure crisis, apparently, which I, I don't get the comparison. But uh, either way, I, what I discovered is, first of all, unemployment benefits are not paid by you and I. They're not paid by the employee. They're paid by the employer. Uh, the corporation pays those uh, or the company of a certain size um, and they call that the payroll tax. It's not paid, with the exception of two states, those being uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, in which employees pay a very tiny percentage of their of the payroll tax. The payroll tax is paid by the company. It goes to the both that they pay both a federal and a state payroll tax. The federal tax goes into the Department of Labor into a fund, and the state tax is managed by the state. But the entire regulation of unemployment insurance is handled by the states and has been since it was established in 1935 along with the Social Security. So it's not a um, – this is not like Social Security or Medicare where it's your money coming out of your check. Okay. You have to apply for unemployment, and every state has different regulations, uh, and, and you have to qualify for it. Now, in Massachusetts, they're actually pretty strict about unemployment in that they want to see if you qualify, and they've got pretty tight standards here. You have to prove that you are looking for a job actively, and when I say that, you have to meet with an employment official after you take a couple of checks, and you have to go over, like, where you've applied and give them the names of companies, and they can check on that, and if they find that you didn't do it, they can cut off your unemployment benefits. So the states have an have a, uh, incentive to reduce the number of people collecting unemployment. It's kind of like what rationing would look like on health care. I mean, they, they, they're trying to save money. And so they do all kinds of things, and every state is different. Now, as far as mandatory drug testing, the first state to implement that was Michigan in 2003, and it was signed into law by a liberal governor, a Democrat, uh, Jennifer Grenholm. The uh, law was basically rescinded after it was challenged by the ACLU, but since then it's been modified, and it is now being implemented or debated or proposed or at various levels in 27 states. 
and those states include both Democratic and Republican states, it tends to lean more Republican, but it's not necessarily a uh, Republican thing. Uh, the new law that's in place in Florida, and it's in place in several other states, it's not mandatory drug testing for everyone. It's random. It's kind of a um, random drug testing. In other words, one of every ten people can be asked to to take the drug test. So I just want to give this a little context. Now, as far as whether or not Governor Scott is personally making money from this because he is a company that's handling it, that's something that may be true. I mean, but that's not a Republican thing. I mean, that's a corruption thing. That's a, that happens on both sides, as you know, Patrick. Here in Massachusetts, for example, the uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, Saul DeMacy, who is a very liberal Democrat, he's in prison right now because he shepherded a contract with a private company for the state, and he got some kind of a, what he calls a gratuity for doing it. He's uh, he was convicted, and he's uh, he's uh, was sent to prison last month. So I just bring that up to point out that. Well, I don't know what the charges that are being lodged against Governor Scott are, and I have a feeling that if he was guilty of any of this, we would know about it because he's got obviously some pretty serious enemies. I mean, you're here thriving at the mouth, and you're out in California. I mean, I can imagine there are people in Florida that are even more upset about him. Oh, there are. <laughs> yeah. Then, then if he did something like that, he's personally benefiting, and there's something like, you know, there'd be charges brought, and if there are, fine. The point is that's corruption. There's nothing to do with Okay. Him being a Republican or Sal Macy being a Democrat or anything else. Okay. I, I noticed that he also has the lowest approval rating of any governor. Now, I was looking at, first of all, good research, and thank you, and I stand corrected on the places where I was wrong there. Um, the um, NFIB.com, uh, which is an official um, government website, says that um, Florida's economy is the worst in the nation. It's got 11% unemployment and that Floridians applying for temporary assistance for needy families, which is another way of saying welfare, unemployment, and Medicare must submit to drug tests. Now, obviously, you found something different. We'll have to see what uh, the why there's a difference in what you, you discovered and, and what I'm reading here. Um, I, I, do, I do appreciate the fact that uh, – Florida is not the only state that does it, but uh, that, that's the information I'm working on. And also we're talking about, when you talk about welfare, that's something that has been fairly widespread in terms of making sure that people asking for welfare are not drug addicts True. addicted to illegal drugs. And I think, Patrick, that you might possibly support that. You know, we, we do recall seeing the movie. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, if someone's going to be on welfare, I don't think it's unreasonable. These are not... Uh, People are not entitled to that money in the sense that they're entitled to Social Security. It's not their money. The taxpayers, and by the way, the taxpayers also subsidize the unemployment system. That's what that whole bill was before Congress. I thought you just said that. Uh, Private and, companies, but also yeah. taxpayers. Is there, I, I don't know the details of exact, the exact ratio. That's something that would take some research. But you might recall that last month the Congress passed a bill extending unemployment benefits. Yes. What that means is that they put taxpayer money into the national fund, which is handled by the Department of Labor, right. because the states have run out of money and they can no longer the, the companies have already paid their payroll taxes. Right. Wasn't so we, have, we have to break for our radio listeners. Okay. Okay. Go for it. All right. Welcome aboard radio listeners. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'd like to welcome aboard our radio affiliates, WWPR in Bradenton, Florida 
and KRKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're listening to Blog Talk Radio. This is Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And, and Albert Navarro is with us. He is with us right now. Yes. Great. Hello, Chuck gentlemen. And Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Welcome aboard, Albert Navarro, our legal expert. Albert, how are you? A terrific, Mr. Morris and Dr. O'Heffernan. How are you gentlemen today? Great. Albert, um, All right. Patrick and I are talking about um, the business of drug testing for unemployment benefits. And uh, I brought up the fact that in 2003, liberal Democratic Governor Jennifer Granholm of, of, uh, of Michigan uh, tried to implement this as a law, and it was thrown out, I think, by a Supreme Court decision, uh, that, uh, or it could have been a state court decision, since then, it's been modified, and there are 27 states that are in various stages of implementing implementing this. Do you think that there's a constitutional problem with uh, with drug testing for people who are applying for unemployment benefits? Well, it's a constitutional issue, but uh, because it touches on uh, Fifth Amendment due process um, and maybe equal protection, but it's not necessarily um, unconstitutional. Uh, right. Basically, as I understand, yeah. Basically, as I understand it, you have the state government wanting to drug test uh, recipients of a benefit to see if they're on an, an illegal drug or not. Is, is right. that basically what's going on? Okay. Yeah. So the first, the first thing you do is you look at the Fifth Amendment, um, which has a due process clause in there, and you see that what the government is is doing is is sort of interfering with a person's access to a benefit. So, you know, the the person who's being asked to submit to a drug test is going to raise a due process argument. The next thing you see is that, um, you know, the benefit of, uh, let's say, welfare or unemployment benefit or whatever it is, it's not one of the handful of rights that the Supreme Court has labeled a fundamental right. And that's really important. Fundamental rights are very few. Uh, the right. right to travel between states, uh, the right to uh, freedom of speech and religion, the right to vote. Whenever the government interferes with a fundamental right, it's almost always unconstitutional. But the right to a public benefit is not a fundamental right. And so the government gets a lot more leeway when it's, so to speak, interfering with that right. Uh, the Supreme Court applies a much more lenient test to any law, such as one of these drug test laws. And what the court does, it's really simple. Um, and this is why, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about talking with about constitutional law with, with you know, non-law students, because it's not that complicated. The first thing the Supreme Court would ask is, what are the, what are the government interests here? In other words, why should the government care whether this guy getting welfare or whatever is on illegal drugs? And the government will say stuff like, and we can all make up, we can, you, you, ideas are probably coming to your head right now and to the listeners, right? It's not that right. complicated. The government might say, well, look, we need to preserve scarce state resources, which are very scarce these days. We need to ensure that our public funds are being used for legitimate purposes. Uh, if, if it's an unemployment benefit, maybe the government wants to uh, promote returning to work. Well, that's uh, maybe right. the and government I just... That, that's exactly in, in the 1935 Unemployment Act, which accompanied the Social Security Act. It said that um, the all all regulations regarding unemployment insurance would be handled by the states. The federal government would simply maintain a reserve fund if they ran out of money, 
and that the states since then have had all kinds of regulations based upon the principle that unemployment insurance is supposed to only be temporary. I think it's 20, generally averages 24 weeks, and it's supposed to the person who is getting it has to show what they call a good faith effort legally in terms of um, trying to get a job. And I think that if somebody is addicted to illegal drugs and they apply for unemployment, they're not in a position to have, make a good faith effort to uh, to get a job. And it also puts the state in somewhat of a liability because if that person who's on illegal drugs, they assumedly use some of the money to buy illegal drugs as opposed to helping their families or helping themselves get a job, they could they could die or they could get involved in criminality, in which case the state, at least morally, if not possibly legally, would have some level of responsibility for that. Well, Albert, we asked you to come on uh, to talk about the Supreme Court case that's coming down on whether or not the American government can kill Americans in foreign countries. Did you do any research on that? Oh, a ton. <laughs> and yeah. can the U.S. government kill American citizens abroad? The short answer is I think so. Now, we don't have a uh, Supreme Court opinion on this yet, so um, you know we, we just have our personal opinions. But I'll give you a, a few constitutional reasons why it would probably be constitutional. Now, you, you all know the background here. Recently, the Attorney General Holder said that, in his opinion, the Constitution allows the federal government to uh, assassinate or do what they call a targeted killing of a U.S. citizen who is abroad if that person is plotting an attack, an imminent attack, against other Americans. And he laid out a few factors that the federal government is, is using. Um, number one, there has to be an imminent threat of violent attack. Number two, capture of this person uh, must not be feasible or practical or possible. And number three, assassination of this person must be consistent with what they call the laws of war. Well, we know um, that this has already happened. The Washington uh, Post reported that I think early 2010, the president authorized the targeted killing of Anwar al-Awlaki. Mm -hmm. And we know that in September of last year, um, excuse me, uh, we know that, uh, okay, who is he? He was involved, they say, with uh, three of the 9-11 hijackers, the Fort Hood shooter, the Christmas Day bomber, and the Times Square bomber. So bad guy. And, mm -hmm. and we know that in September of last year, he was killed by two drones in Yemen. Um, so, let me just ask you a question about that. Was there yeah. any judge or that that heard this case in you know, kind of kind of behind closed doors, like they would have done in a mafia case? In other words, like the mafia can, you can, the state can impose RICO laws and bug a mafia place, but they have to see a judge and get permission and show their evidence. Quite, you know, behind closed doors, obviously, because they don't want to tip anyone off that they're doing it. Now, is there any process seconds. in place for this? No. Now, I mean, if it was completely secret, we wouldn't know about it. But if it happened right. in a court, there'd have to be some public record that at least a matter could be done, was heard. No, a, court, a judge can hear something in secret. And, in fact, in Massachusetts, in the case of Jerry Angiulo, Judge Diane Kottmeyer, who's a very good judge here, she heard evidence that the FBI presented, which in terms of why they wanted to bug his office, and she set, she allowed it to go forward. We have one minute, gentlemen, before our next guest. Anyway, yeah, the quick answer there. Our, we'll have to get into this more in more detail. We just we're a little running tight today, schedule-wise. But well, real quick, Albert, uh, is, we don't know yet if the American government constitutionally can kill Americans abroad. That's yet to be determined. 
It's yet to be determined. The Supreme Court is the final word on that question, and we don't know. Okay. Thanks right. so much, Al. But we'll talk to you soon. We'll, we, we need more time for this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. My pleasure. Take care both. All right. Take care. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our next guest, Michael Schumann. Stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, CyberStation USA, and our radio affiliates. Don't go away. back, Chuck. You want to let our, our listeners know how they can get in touch with us? Sure. You're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Um, is our guest with us, Patrick? Our guest is with us. Okay. We've got Michael Schumann joining us. He is an author uh, of uh, Local Dollars and Local Cents. Michael, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Nice to be with you. Michael, one of the things that I took away from the book was in your introduction where you mentioned something without going into too much detail on it that I found to be quite revelatory, and that is that the federal government has laws has, has put laws in place going back to the Depression era that tend to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for investors to invest in local businesses. Uh, in other words, it has to be done through a broker who deals on Wall Street or deals only in the big guys and the national businesses. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Right. I mean, this is a, this is a critical obstacle, I think, to reviving our economy right now is to fix this problem. And it, it's interesting that we're speaking about this on a day when Obama and the House Republicans have come together with something called Jumpstart Our Business Startups, or JOBS, which is like their first joint collaborative effort to work together, and their focal point is to reverse this problem in securities law. And the basic issue is this. We have, in long-term savings, something like $30 trillion in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and pension funds. That is what households have. And roughly half of our economy is local small business by, by jobs and by output. So you would think if we had an efficient capital market, roughly speaking, half of those long-term savings would be going into these small businesses. And in fact, almost nothing is. It is an incredible market failure. And it means that all of us are under-investing in the local businesses we know are essential for community prosperity and job creation. And the underlying reason is that the securities laws basically require a small business to pay a lawyer 50, 100,000, maybe more, uh, to paper a transaction that allows a uh, an investor, a low-dollar investor, to put money into the business, and they just say, forget it, it's too expensive. Yeah, so in other words, when the SEC was put in place, I think it was in 1938, they, there were rules put in place, there were laws put in place that made it uh, so expensive for small businesses to be traded that only the big, big corporations could be traded. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, really the securities law could be could be seen as the Large Business Support Act yeah. uh, because it totally shuts small business out of capital markets. You know, it and really it has taken, a, I think, it has know, taken this number of years, I think, for small businesses finally to say enough. We've got to change this. You know, the other thing that that occurs to me on this, and it's really astonishing. I had no idea that that the deck was rigged in such a way. I'm not surprised, but it's uh, it's quite blunt. Is that uh, why can't there be, or are there, I should say, local stock exchanges? Why does everything have to go through the New York Stock Exchange? Why can't there be the Cincinnati Stock Exchange or the Louisville Stock Exchange? You know, where you have local companies trading, uh, you know, public publicly traded stock locally. And and indeed, this had been the case a hundred years ago. And securities laws and technological innovation sort of led to massive consolidation to the point where right now we have two global stock exchanges in this country, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, and then two sort of boutique stock exchanges in Chicago, which sort of do the same thing. Um, But there is a need to create... Um, places, and these places don't need to be brick-and-mortar places, they can be virtual places, where those who hold small local securities can come and trade them. And we are beginning to see um, new um, entrepreneurs kind of coming into the marketplace and creating these exchanges. So one example that I write about in my book is called Mission Markets, which is a company based in New York. And for you know, something around fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, they will create for a city or a state or a region a portal that would allow you to create a kind of virtual exchange. For I mean, they're working primarily with with wealthier or accredited investors, but they could over time open it up to unaccredited investors too. And uh, right now, the state of Hawaii, which last year. Uh, the state legislature passed a law asking their economic developers to really study local stock exchanges. They are now talking with mission markets, and that may well be the first local stock exchange we see in the country is in Hawaii. I think that would be excellent. I would I would hope that every state or every even regions could have local stock exchanges where you could have a means by which perhaps the state can accredit stockbrokers locally who can trade in local companies, and I'm astonished that this uh, somehow the government rigged things in such a way where where only the uh, New York uh, you know stockbrokers could play in this game. Well, I think this whole thing is about to blow wide open, and I'll tell you, even if these reform laws do not pass Congress, uh, what will happen is that certain states will. Uh, deregulate how things are traded within their perimeters. And then, you know, we'll we'll show that most of the horribles that people fear about deregulation is not going to happen, and and then it will spread nationally. Right, good. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chuck, and and thanks thanks for being with us. And uh, you just reminded me I used to walk past the Pacific Stock Exchange uh, every morning on my my way to the office. And uh, it's no longer there. 
and it's too bad. Indeed, yeah. and and in fact, it, I my technically my employer right now is a company called Cutting Edge Capital, and my partner in that one of my two partners is a guy named John Katovich, who used to be the Council General of the Pacific Stock Exchange. And he presided over its closure when all of their business moved elsewhere. And But he is now one of the great advocates of local stock markets. Well, well, so am I. The Pacific Exchange was very important in the development of the West, as you well know. Well, uh, I, I really like this book uh, very much, and I want to thank uh, Chuck for uh, sending it my way. I never would have noticed it uh, otherwise. So um, there's a number of things in here that uh, uh, were both fun and um, I think highly useful, and that is the ways in which various businesses have gotten around the federal regulations. And I'm thinking uh, of a, a uh, coffee shop or cafe in Oakland, one which I've actually visited and uh, they came up with a, a very innovative way to get investors without running afoul of the uh, the regulations. You want to want to tell us about that? Yeah, the magic word was pre-sale, and they needed about eighty thousand uh, dollars to open up their new store. And they basically convinced their old customers, the most loyal of their old customers, to buy twelve hundred dollars worth of coffee in advance. Uh, for a thousand dollars, so basically they were getting a twenty percent discount, or you could think of it as a rate of return on their investment um, for for this. And at the time that I finished the book, they were about halfway through their uh, their raise, and I think at this point they've pretty well gotten the money together. Well, the the uh, the other way in which you talked about, and it's something I've known, but our readers may not know, is crowdfunding. And there's a couple of websites out there, Kickstarter being one. You might tell our listeners what um, crowdfunding in, how Kickstarter works, uh, and how this gets around the regulations. Right. Well, so crowdfunding is not a legal term. It's more of a, a social term. But but it it's being applied to a bunch of different approaches. Um, so the ones that you can find on the web right now that have kind of cleared all the legal obstacles. So so one are, are these sort of sponsorship sites. Kickstarter, Indiegogo are examples. And say you are a beer company and you want to start a new beer. Uh, you're looking for $100,000. Well, you may ask through Indiegogo, uh, people to contribute one dollar to this, and if they contribute ten dollars, you'll send them a T-shirt. If they contribute uh, ten thousand dollars, you'll name the beer after them. Well, because these gifts are not really seen as a rate of return on your investment, but rather just sort of little perks, these are not considered securities. So the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, allows this. Um, the second variation that you can find is uh, Kiva.org, and Kiva.org is a micro-lending site that uh, allows you to invest in entrepreneurs in the global south, $100, $200 at a shot. It's like Muhammad Yunus in electronic form. He was the founder of the Grameen Bank. And in Kiva... You don't get your, you don't get any interest. You only get your principal back. So in most states, not every state, this is not regarded as a security either. So Kiva has gotten 
uh, permission to operate most everywhere. Um, the more interesting and challenging sites are the ones that um, begin to give you a rate of return. And, and the biggest example is Prosper.com. And when Prosper opened a number of years ago to connect small borrowers and small lenders, um, they claimed, well, we're not really a security kind of institution. We just are a little bank. And the SEC disagreed with them and made them go back and do $3 million of legal work, all, all, all at the same time when the SEC was exposed to have ignored billions of dollars of fraud by Bernie Madoff. They were attacking microcredit. But, but Prosper did their homework, and now Prosper operates, and that, that is a mechanism that is available for people to get small loans for their business. Well, Matt Flannery, um, uh, the co-founder of Kiva, with his then-wife, Jessica Jackley, was on the uh, Namaste uh, Foundation board with me, and I kind of went through that with him. Um, and he managed to avoid that, uh, and he was very uh, very clever about doing that. So it can be done. Of course, he founded that in his dorm room at Stanford, he and his wife did. So it's possible to do this. Um, there's uh, you, In your... Um, Chapter, If I Was a Rich Man, which, you know, that was the first chapter I went to, of course, when you see something like that. Um, you talked about the uh, the mutual fund portfolio 21 and some of the um, uh, problems that it went through. You want to tell our listeners about portfolio 21? Yeah, so um, portfolio and upstream 21 are the grandchildren of uh, a really smart and I think, visionary investment advisor in the Pacific Northwest named Leslie Christian. And um, Upstream 21 in particular is, is the one that I, I told the, the story around because she, she had this idea that, you, that she could create a kind of a holding company and use that holding company to buy some small businesses that were struggling or maybe the owners of the of the business needed to sell out and she would try to rejuvenate them and she would then go out to her investor community to try to uh, get the capital to make this happen and I think her, her vision has been that she would ultimately have 10 or 20 companies so far she's had three companies underneath this umbrella and this is an example of you know, where securities law says if you put money in a fund and the fund is not doing sort of anything like a revolving loan for small business, but it's something more ambitious, you must be a super accredited investor, um, which means to say you must be a very wealthy person to Isn't put it, uh, your money into this. dollars worth of net, net uh, uh, worth and uh, $250,000 a year salary? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, so the numbers for accredited investors generally right now are for an individual you need 200000 for a couple 300000 you need wealth of a million, excluding your house. Um, but, but then um, when you're putting money into, say, what the SEC would regard as a hedge fund, and Upstream 21 was considered a hedge fund, the criteria might even be more demanding than that. But all of this is a way to say that, that if you are wealthy, you have the ability to put your money into anything, no questions asked. 
And so, so consequently, some of the most interesting innovations in supporting local small business have happened from wealthy people doing good things. And now that the now the concept has been proven, I think we can open it up to others to participate. Well, what do we have to do that? Um, uh, what changes in policy are necessary to unleash this uh, local investment, small business investment, non, uh, non-wealthy investment? Well, I'll tell you. So there was a bill that passed in the Congress um, at the end of last year sponsored by a Tea Party Republican named Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. And it it passed something like 410 to 17. And this basically gave every person in the U.S. the opportunity to invest up to $10,000 per year per company with no questions asked. Now, I think a number of people... And you know, Congress, the Senate in particular, which is now deliberating over the the sort of matching bills to this, um, has been flooded with people saying, "I, I give people ten thousand dollars of freedom. All these old ladies are going to throw their money in and lose it to shysters." And I mean, there's uh, even if you believe that's true, there probably is some number that's smaller than ten thousand dollars. At which point you say, you know, if you want to put your money in that, fine. I had proposed two years ago to the SEC that they simply do a $100 exemption just to sort of test the waters. Um, And after all, $100 in a stock issue is no more risky than a dinner for two at a new restaurant that's just opened. Um, And yet SEC wouldn't let us do it. So... I think that the Senate's going to come out with some number. Maybe it'll be a hundred. Maybe it'll be a thousand. But once there's this little crack in the dam, I think the whole thing will come down because people will understand that the rationale for treating the way we put money into companies as an investment to make that different from the way that we spend our money on other things no longer makes a lot of sense. Chuck, would you support that legislation? Yeah, absolutely, but uh, with, except maybe with one caveat, and that is that um, couldn't the states be involved in developing some kind of a, um, a local oversight of, uh, of uh, stock and bond purchases, particularly stock in this case? I mean, I would want to see some sort of a means by which a company that get, is accredited locally to trade publicly um, has to um, – be reach a, a certain state approval, and and as such, you know they have to be listed, um, so that uh, yeah, some, you know, they can show some be- proof that they've got some collateral and they've got some equity. Well, these I'll tell you, these are exactly the kinds of issues that that are being debated now in the Senate. You know, over over I guess there's three competing bills right now, and they have different approaches to this. Uh, um, personally. Um, I would like to see this turned mostly back to the states. But there is an argument here that if if you don't have a little bit of federal preemption here, uh, what's going to happen is, is that states won't change their requirements, the feds will change their requirements, and for a small company they'll still be in exactly the same place until they change state laws all over the place. Right. 
Well, sure. I mean, the federal government could have some oversight, but I would think that on a state level, it, it could be set up so that, as you say, the smaller investor can get into the action by looking at an approved list. In other words, companies would have to reach certain thresholds in order to qualify for a uh, a state stock exchange, and, and there would be some state oversight. There'd be some reporting, you know. In other words, to protect that old lady from giving her money to a shyster, you know, which is something that. Right. Yeah, I, I I think that's a good approach, and I'll say a, a, a kind of related approach that may turn out to be what we do is in the United Kingdom, um, they got a bunch of the the larger accounting firms to put together an oversight organization that reviews um, proposals to create stock, and they just kind of go through the materials um, fairly quickly and efficiently. And in a way, I think the privatization of that oversight may be a more effective way of doing it than leaving it in the hands of the SEC. Oh, absolutely, or at least on the state level, but sure. I mean, you could ask companies, for example, to join some sort of a private uh, guild that that maintains standards uh, for membership, and that uh, th that is kind of like the way good housekeeping seal of approval works. You know, they uh, yes. they get a seal, and it says this company guarantees that they have X number of dollars in, in equity. They've got these properties. It's, everything becomes public, and then people can go in with their eyes open a little bit when they decide they want to invest. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, if you look at eBay, I mean, eBay is an example of a marketplace where they develop some interesting and, I think, innovative uh, mechanisms of quality control. So customers give feedback on every vendor, and every vendor gives feedback on the customers. And you start to develop, you know, a kind of blacklist of people you don't want to do business with. And I think that kind of approach to screening out bad actors is really where we should be heading in securities law, away from the rule today that says, sorry, if you're not rich, you can't participate. Right. And I make a, a just station identification very you. quickly here. Where you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates. You can be part of this conversation. You can email at fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call in, 424-675-6806. Want to continue on, Chuck? Okay. Our guest is Michael Schumann. The book is uh, Local Dollars, Local Cents. We're talking about local uh, investment in companies. Uh, Michael, certainly a small investor can invest in Wall Street through things like Fidelity and other mutual funds for as little as $100 a month, but nevertheless, they're still buying national and international stock versus uh, possibly having a, a local mutual fund, a local um, stock exchange where, company, where people can invest locally, which is something that, you know, it seems like the American way. I mean, I, I totally am with you on this. You brought up a very tantalizing issue also in your book, something that I've been studying recently and that I know a little bit about, and that is the the phenomena of the Berkshires. That being out in right. the western part of Massachusetts, Berkshire County, you have the issuance of local currency, these Berkshires, they're dollars, that can be used uh, to purchase things at businesses that are members of the association that accepts Berkshires. 
can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that gets to a very basic issue of um, how we handle money in this country. Right. Well, you know, if you think about it, a lot of these so-called alternative currencies are really no different than credit cards or debit cards or coupons or just all kinds of other instruments that we've created uh, to transact purchases. And so the, the key thing about local money is that because local money will only be accepted uh, by uh, local vendors, uh, it is a way of directing people, encouraging and, and, and rewarding people who spend their dollars locally. And from an economic standpoint, um, the more money that you spend within a community and the more times that money circulates, the greater the number of income, income increases and uh, more jobs and more wealth. So the, the multiplier is a pretty critical piece of development. Um, unfortunately, most of these local currency um, experiments are quite small. Berkshires is probably the biggest, most ambitious one in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the most competently wa- run in the country and probably the one to watch. What I would love to see is where local government began to get involved. And, you know, during the Great Depression, um, many many localities in the United States and in Europe started to print their own currency. Right. And in the, in the city of Philadelphia, yeah, I mean, the city of Philadelphia, they issued a script. Rather than firing teachers and public employees, they said, you know, we're going to uh, cut back night. We're going to cut back 10% of your salary, pay you that 10% in the local script, and then we'll allow people to use that for partial payment of their property taxes. And I thought that was a very clever proposal. And when we start to see that kind of ramp-up of local currencies, I think there will be much more significant uh, tools for economic development. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And I would say the only thing I, I would point out, though, is that um, the difference between Berkshires or a local currency and credit cards or even debit cards is that there's no interest paid. There's no um, fee involved. It is it is um, debt-free issuance of currency. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I'm not suggesting that Berkshires could be used to pay your taxes, uh, but the point is that there's nothing that would prevent a local community from issuing currency. Another, I mean, in a way it's a way to pay for, for example, infrastructure projects. Let's say a city wants to build a bridge. They can issue bridge currency rather than going into debt, rather than having national debt or local debt. You know, if this is accepted by merchants in the region as as payment for goods and services, then eventually the currency would be redeemed in time and the bridge would be paid for debt-free. It's a great idea. And and last year um, I was working in Cleveland and uh, on a local food project, and we did an, a study on what would be the impacts of a 25% shift toward food localization, and it turns out it would create 27,000 jobs in the greater Cleveland area. And we proposed that Cleveland issue food bonds, mm-hmm. uh, and the food bonds would generate uh, revenue that would be used to collateralize loans from 
local banks and credit unions to support what we thought would be the most important new local food businesses. And those bonds could then be purchased, you know, probably would be purchased largely by people in the region. So there's a lot of ways uh, that, that one can play with these concepts that I think really can can be game changers for economic development. Absolutely. And um, the only other question I have about the local issuance of currency, do the people that issue Berkshires, how do they make a profit from it, and how do they decide how many Berkshires to issue? Well, I think that it is um, – I may be I may be wrong about this, but I think it's close to a one to one dollar redemption. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, people come in to exchange some dollars for Berkshires, and then at some point you can come back and redeem your Berkshires for dollars. Um, I also think though there is a little bit of a discount um, that helps to uh, uh, cover the the the. Uh, the actual administrative costs of the system. Right. Other than that, though, it's not like the Federal Reserve issuing, you know, in, interest-bearing uh, notes. It's it's, uh, it's interest-free and uh, it's not bonded debt. It's uh, neutral. Right. Yes. Patrick, I've been thinking about that because I know the Constitution gives the, the Congress the ability to issue currency, and and of course you're quite right, Chuck. You couldn't pay your taxes with it, but. Um, if many, many uh, communities did issue their own currency like this, uh, wouldn't that lead to kind of currency chaos across the country? I, it just seems like it's an odd... Well, it would only be used locally, Patrick, for local transactions. I mean, Berkshires can't be used in Boston. You know, they can only be used at businesses okay. that subscribe to it, and that's in Berkshire County, which is a rural county in the westernmost part of Massachusetts. But you can also use dollars there too. Of course. Oh, okay. All right. Oh yeah. No, it's just it just supplements the uh, the, the the money and it keeps business local. And also, uh, um, you, you know, it was used during the depression by many municipalities. In fact, the yeah. state of Utah issued its own currency because money was so scarce. There was such a deflation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we are just about out of time here, so uh, maybe we should. Uh, Thank our guest. Michael Schumann, I want to thank you for joining us. Local dollars, local cents, where do people get the book? Uh, They can get it online, but preferably they might ask their local bookstore to get it for them. Absolutely. (laughs) There you go. Is there a website? Uh, The the website where I live and I post stuff is called cuttingedgecapital.com. Michael Schumann, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. Take Thank care, you, Michael. Okay, we'll be back Bye-bye. after some messages. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Please stay tuned. And I wanted to remind our listeners of uh, one of our great sponsors, and that's uh, Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Barton Publishing is the place to go for information on how to manage your body and your health without using expensive and possibly dangerous drugs. 
Barton Publishing offers an entire range of information on everything from the common cold to, to arthritis to rheumatism to uh, acid reflux. You name it, they offer information on it. This is all information by doctors and by experts, and it's information on what natural substances you can use to control things like acid reflux. Not cure. They don't offer cures, but this is to control, to manage, to, to keep yourself healthy without without walking down those very expensive aisles in, in the drugstore. That's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. And when you go to Barton Publishing, if you decide to make a purchase, don't forget to put fairness into the coupon code, and you'll get a discount. So that's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. And we are back. Patrick, is there another issue you'd like to touch upon? Well, I, I wanted to follow up a little bit on the unemployment uh, issue uh, in Florida um, and also the welfare, the, actually a drug testing issue. Um, right. We didn't have an opportunity with um, Albert because we'd actually asked Albert to come on and talk about something else, so he wasn't really prepared. But I noticed that a federal judge had actually um, halted uh, Florida's welfare drug testing after the uh, the state had begun uh, drug testing, they had tested 7,000 people, and they found only 32 of them were using drugs. So, in other words, the the uh, the proportion of the uh, the people who were requesting uh, welfare actually um, and who tested positive for drugs was 4%, which is about one third of the, the general population is. And actually, a number of uh, experts had predicted that because they said that somebody who's getting $180 a month isn't really going to be spending on, on drugs. So, so that may have mooted the the whole case there. Now, on unemployment, um, I, I I don't know on that one because that that's uh, a different um, situation. However, we point out that. Um, Every state has different unemployment uh, regulations, as you pointed out. And here in California, they, and when I've been an employer, I've I've, uh, have, I've had to certify various things about if, uh, people that I've let go that uh, uh, who applied for unemployment, and they had to do exactly what you said. They had to be out looking for jobs. Right, because but, the employer still, even after they leave, they still have to pay. They get they get you know assessed another uh, payroll tax. And if the yeah. unemployment is extended, they get to pay another yeah. payroll tax. It, it is, but it, it, it's pretty negligible. But but right. but you're right. Actually, one of the things that the the, the court uh, pointed out uh, in its uh, uh, blocking of the the test is that Florida was making the applicants pay for it. So they were not only having their Fourth Amendment uh, uh, rights violated, but they were being forced to pay for that violation. No, actually, of the Fourth Patrick, Amendment. I, I looked into that. What happens is that. There's a $30 fee if you uh, for the drug test, which I don't think they should have. But if you pass the drug test, you're reimbursed. You get it reimbursed. That, that, that's and, and obviously, if you don't pass the drug test, you don't get reimbursed. But yeah. when you, first of all, there are drug tests for welfare recipients in, I think, more than half of the states in the union. So maybe if a, if a state judge threw out one um, issue around one state, that might be because of the specific way the law was drawn in that state, it or it be. might have to do with that judge. It, or it also may be that nobody's challenged the other ones yet. Too. That may be. No, there's a challenge. I think, and and I think it's something that's that's um, pretty much ongoing. Now, as far as the, the percentage of people on drugs that were found, don't you think that might be because somebody who is addicted to drugs, knowing that there's going to be a drug test, might have decided to forego the opportunity to get welfare? 
one one doesn't know. No, they don't. But yeah, I think so we can. I think it's not unreasonable to assume that that that's the case. And, not, you know, not necessarily, you because the majority of those uh, that turned up were actually marijuana, and marijuana doesn't last your system that long. So people may have thought that, it, that they have just flushed it out, and they didn't oh, have okay. to worry about it too. So, and I think that it's reasonable to say that if somebody's addicted to an illegal drug, and you know, and they know they're going to get tested if they want to get unemployment, they're either going to get off welfare, not unemployment. Welfare. Okay. They're either going to do the right thing and get off the drug before they get tested, which I think is good, you know, especially in the case of unemployment. If you know you're going to want to apply for unemployment and you have an addiction, you, you get off the drug and then you apply. Well, you know, we, or, we, we you don't know. know, and the researchers uh, who, who did that study for, for the state uh, were not able to determine that because, you, as, you, as you say, they may have been a select, self-selected, they may not have been. Right. I mean, but it's possible any, to know. But, but in any case, uh, what we do know is that only 4% actually turned up w- with drugs. Well, I'm surprised it's that many. I mean, if you are... Well, that's about one-third of the general population when, when there's... Yeah, but if you're addicted to drugs and you know there's going to be a drug test in order to get unemployment... You know, I would think that most people would not either get off the drug or they would not apply. Well, the, the, I know you're being no addicted, way. and the majority of that was marijuana, which is not an addictive drug. Or on together. marijuana. The point is, if you know you have a drug test coming up, you wouldn't you you get you stop smoking marijuana for at least a period of yeah. several weeks to you get would. it out of your system. You would, but I, I, as I say, we don't know if these were self-selected or not. No, we can't know. I mean, it's impossible know. to know that. It just makes common sense. Well. To you it does, not to me. <laughs> it doesn't make common sense to you. So then if you were no. smoking marijuana and you wanted to get unemployment uh, and you're going down. Welfare, not unemployment. Way, all right, welfare in this case, yeah. which requires going down and applying actively and, and seeing if you qualify and knowing that part of that qualification was that you'd be tested for a substance. You don't think that it would occur to you to uh, not take the, uh, not smoke for a few weeks or Either that or, you know, not go if you wanted to continue to smoke. Well, that's assuming that you thought about it in advance and that you you knew in advance that when you sent in the paperwork for that, you were going to get another letter back that said you have to show up and pay $35. Now, it may very well be that when people got the letter and said that you have to show up for a drug test and pay $35, some of them said, I haven't got $35. That's why I'm paying for welfare. Who does the state think it is? And some of them said, nah, I've been smoking dope, so I don't want to. Yeah. But, again, we don't know that. The only thing we do know that is only 4% actually turned up smoking drug, smoking dope, and that's one-third of what the general population of Florida is, according to other tests. But the whole thing may be moot because they, in Florida a federal judge stopped the testing, and I see that there's also litigation in Michigan against that, too. So well, I think why do we follow all this? In Michigan, it was already thrown out when liberal Democratic Governor Jennifer Glenholm tried to implement it, which I think goes to the point that this is not a uh, a Democrat-Republican thing. It's just something that states, for various reasons, want to do. I mean, they're, they're used to regulating who gets welfare and who gets unemployment. And unemployment is not uh, your money. It's, it's, a, it's, it's it is employer's a, money. It's employer's money, and it's the state and federal yeah. subsidizing it. So in a sense, you could say that it's almost a form of welfare, but not quite the same. And that means that implied in that, the state and the federal government has a right to not only regulate it, but to decide you know, what qualifies someone for getting it. It's not a right. And, and to do so is not authoritarian. The only thing that's authoritarian is, and by the way, I don't necessarily disagree with this, 
but it's when the government actually passes these laws that force companies to pay the um, the payroll tax, or they force states to give people welfare. Well, that's, that's part of what it means to be a to, to, to be a citizen. I mean, nobody built a business on their own. They all used the, the past foundations built by previous taxpayers, and they need to pay it forward. And part of that is to see to it that we keep people who are unemployed in the economic system. So and I wouldn't say it's authoritarian. I'd say it's, it's it's your responsibility as a system to sustain your country. Patrick, I'm not arguing it. Okay. I, I would tend to agree that it's appropriate. I'm simply saying that it is authoritarian in nature, and in that sense maybe I'm more liberal in that I want the government to use that kind of authority. My point is that this is the only part of this transaction that's authoritarian. The fact that people who the government would then regulate it, because after all, again, this is a privilege, not a right, and that people have a right to either apply for it or not, that they would put in standards by which people can get it, that's not authoritarian. Well, because if the standards violate the Fourth Amendment, they are authoritarian, and we have to wait for the Supreme Court to decide on that. So did this, was, that, was the decision made based on the Fourth Amendment? Yes, it was based on the Fourth Amendment. And that was a state decision? That, that was a state decision in one state. It has not been appealed to the Supreme Court yet. Well, I so think we don't that, know. Well, then the state has to rewrite the, the regulation in a way that would, you know, they need some good lawyers to figure out how to do that because I think that the state has a right and maybe it could be done without the, the specific kind of testing but the state has a right to determine if someone's on drugs before they give them either either welfare or unemployment. That's common sense. Well, now, maybe it could be done without yeah. you know the urine test. Maybe there's a technology in place where it could simply be done quickly, like with some sort of a uh, you know one of these wands, like they now do with uh, with temperature. I don't know. I, but I don't uh, know but either way, I think the state has a compelling interest when someone uh, uh, voluntarily applies for one of these programs that involves taxpayer money, and this one does. They have a right to to uh, maintain standards of who qualifies for it. Well, that, that's we have to determine, and the courts will determine if the the state's interest there is uh, is more important than the uh, protection of. of of citizens' rights, and that's a balancing act, and that's what we have courts to do. A court may find that the protection of the Fourth Amendment rights of, of the citizens of the state overwhelms the, what the state claims is, is its interest, and particularly since uh, the test that we now had show that such a small percentage of people actually do apply and take drugs that there may not be an, a compelling state interest there. The compelling interest may be in protecting the Fourth Amendment, and again, we have to wait and see what the court says on that one. Well, I think it's a it's a wrong interpretation, an activist interpretation. Well, there hasn't been an interpretation yet, so we don't know. Well, I mean, if you just said it was interpreted by a, a court of the by court. one federal judge in one yeah. state, and that was of that Fourth Amendment. I think that's that's very a very wrong decision. Well, conservatives have a tendency to say that every decision they don't like is activist. No, they don't. Yes, they it. do. Uh, that, that's become a conservative watchword. In fact, it was one of France, uh, France Luntz's advice to advice to Republicans to always call dis, uh, decisions they don't like activists. It's part of discredit. It's part of the Republican attempt to discredit the courts. What was uh, well? I don't think Republicans want to discredit the court system. But what was Frank Luntz's example of an activist decision? Well, he, he started, of course, with Roe versus Wade. And he said, from well, now on, any any, any decision uh, that uh, you don't like that uh, goes against quote freedom call it activist, and we're, we're going to put in the public mind that liberal judges are activists and conservative judges, uh, of course, stick by the Constitution, which in Citizens United we found was just the opposite. Patrick, I think that Roe versus Wade, the, 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 the most proud supporters of it, 
considerate to the activist. I mean, that's not even controversial. I know that, for example, I saw a uh, Channel 2 documentary on the Supreme Court which where you had all of these liberal scholars and judges and former judges talking about the importance of the court taking action and doing these things and redefining and, and the living constitution and, and they were quite proud to say that it was activist. I don't even, I don't know if that's even something that Frank Lumps didn't need to make that up. <laughs> well, it did. was activist. Well, he maybe he did, he did try to phrase it, but I think he did so in a manner that he was saying that decisions that run against freedom, um, as it's you know, which is the basis of the Constitution, you could argue and should argue are activist decisions. Now, as far as uh, you know, Citizens United, which of course you by your definition is constitutional because the Supreme Court said so. Um, I don't see where that would be activist. I mean, that's uh, upholding the right of free association. I mean, that's not uh, – they didn't invent something. Well, now, yeah, actually, they did because that wasn't the question that was before them. They actually decided a different question. They reached out to decide a question that they hadn't been asked to decide. It wasn't part of the case at all. And they made up personhood for, for uh, corporations, which is nowhere in the Constitution. Totally out. Now, wait a minute, Patrick. First of all, what they reached out for was not something that was not in the it Constitution. Was not in, it was not, yeah, in, not in the, the case. Not in, in the case that was before them. And right, we're, and that's something that judges do all the time. But no, it, they don't but, either. And we're, yes, but something do. we do all the time is we're at the end of the hour. Maybe we have to pick this up when we come back from the break. Okay. Okay. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on Block Talk Radio, on CyberStation USA, and our radio affiliates. And we'll be right back. Radio with Chuck and Patrick on CyberStation USA and Blog Talk Radio and our radio affiliates. And we are entering Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And coming up, we've got a great conversation with uh, a former Federal Reserve Bank economist, David Barker, who will talk to us about the relationship between the national debt and national economic growth. But in the meantime, in, in uh, in honor of economic growth, let's talk a little bit about one of our sponsors. That would be Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Barton Publishing is your source of information on how to manage your health your way without using dangerous or expensive drugs. It will allow you to stay out of those really expensive aisles in your local drugstore and to use natural ways to manage your health. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. And don't forget to use the word fairness in the coupon code. And, and Chuck can attest to how effective Barton Publishing's information is, can't you, Chuck? Sure, Patrick. And I urge people to go to uh, to order Barton Publications. Or is it Barton Publishing? It's uh, Go to Barton Publishing and order some of their publications. <laughs> Patrick, getting back to the issue of um, activism in the Supreme Court, um, whether it be a Republican operative or not, I think that it's true that uh, activist judges should be discredited. It, it's uh, authoritarian at its very essence for appointed officials who are not accountable to the people, who are 
you know, there for life and who are not elected to be deciding what is, you know, constitutional law. That's not their function based on the Constitution itself. And uh, it's much more democratic to have elected officials in Congresses and in state legislatures make those decisions. And if they make a decision that is unconstitutional, then you have judges step in and say, this is not constitutional and and change that. But uh, as far as uh, Citizens United goes, the decision was not in any way contradictory to constitutional principles, no matter how they arrived at it. And for us to sit here and second-guess how judges arrive at decisions, that's interfering with our judicial branch of government. That is interfering with the concept of a separation of powers. Judges can decide an issue any way they want. The only question is whether or not their decision itself is activist. And whether we like the decision of um, Citizens United or not, and I have some big questions about it, especially lately, it was not inconsistent with the principles that it was based on, which is the right to assemble. Now, as far as the business of corporations as people, Patrick, do you remember we had on our program uh, Ben Rush, the author of Negrophile? No, I don't. Eric Rush, he's the author of Negrophile. No, I don't. He made a very interesting observation during that, that interview where he said that he doesn't like, to, he's tired of debating liberals because you can talk about something with them seven or eight times and they will understand it and they will agree with you and then the ninth time it's like they never heard it. <laughs> and this is where we are with this business of the um, whether the whether that decision or any decision referred to corporations as people. We just had on this program last week a, a very liberal scholar by the name of Tamara Piety. Remember her? Yeah, I remember Tamara. Brandishing the First Amendment? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. All right, you can't get more liberal than her, and uh, she's very uh, proud no, to be. And that, no, extremely liberal, Patrick. Uh, by your terms, maybe, not oh, by mine. Oh, you don't think she's liberal? Yeah. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> Why don't we have her back and we can maybe try again? I think that she describes herself as liberal and Everything that she said was pretty liberal, which is fine. I'm not criticizing that. And I didn't think you'd question that. I figured you'd be happy to say, yeah, she's liberal. Well, go on. Make your point. She's, I asked her directly if there was a um, what this was about, the business of corporations as people. And her whole book is about corporations and her conspiracy theory of how corporations are going to legally be able to lie. And I, told, I mentioned I referred to this as an urban myth, and I pointed out that it goes back to a decision that was made in the 1880s in which the footnote of one of the dissenting decisions by a Supreme Court judge in a decision that's widely quoted as where this came about was such that it mentioned corporations as persons. And not only did she agree with me, but she said it was even less than that. She said that the quote was made by a court reporter right, it was. Who, yeah. who put this in his reportage of the decision, right. and somehow it took on a life in that you know, corporate, the Supreme Court had declared corporations as people. Yes. Now, she went on to argue that in a de facto sense, they're considering corporations as people, and that's an argument that can be had either way. But the fact that a, a Supreme Court decision said that corporations are people is an urban myth, and we have had many experts on this program, liberal people, who have admitted that. So... For you to come back now and and ramble that off as if this is a given fact, particularly regarding this decision, yes, and they declared corporations as people, 
you know, it, it's, it goes to what Eric Rush said. Well, 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 let me then uh, be more precise. It gave corporations the same rights as people. And as, and as far as um, um, of, not, uh, of not criticizing uh, judges, for you just did, uh, and, and we can criticize judges all we want. That's called the First Amendment. That's why we're on the, on the radio. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, and, it's what, and they didn't reach the, the right to assemble. What they, what the reason we say it's activist is because they were asked, to decide whether or not a section of, of the McCain-Feingold uh, Campaign Financing Act was constitutional. They reached way beyond that. Nobody asked them to, uh, whether or not corporations have First Amendment rights. That was not in any of the briefs that was before them. The conservative majority of the court just decided to make that up and to, and to rule on something they weren't asked to rule on. That's why we call them activists, because they ruled on something they weren't asked to rule on. And in the process, they completely upended the, uh, the nation's campaign financing and also the way our elections are, are run. They weren't asked to rule on it. They created a right for corporations that never existed before. And, and, and as a result, they have totally upended the way we conduct it. Now, that to me is the, is the definition of activism. If you don't agree with it, then you don't have to agree with it. But, but, but I agree with it. So does Rush Feingold, incidentally, and so does an awful lot of other people. You say that, these, that the decision de facto gave corporations the right of people. That's not also true, Patrick. Well, what it did was it gave corporations and unions and activist organizations like the former Acorn or whatever the right to – the club growth. Let's sure. make sure we get them all in. You bet. Okay. The right to express themselves collectively when it came to political talk and came to political action. That's not giving them rights as people. I mean, it's you're being a little broad. No, about I, I disagree. It is giving them rights as people. Well, it might be giving them the specific right. Oh, we have to, we have to, uh, it's uh, time for a radio. Sorry. Okay. Radio. Want to welcome, welcome in, and we can get back to this. Sure. Let's welcome aboard our radio affiliates, WWPRAM in Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m., Chuck Morse and Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, we're talking about the issue of the right of people. Now, we've already gone, uh, corporations as people, we've already gone over, and once again you've acknowledged, and maybe we'll be back to square one next week when the issue comes up, that there is no Supreme Court decision that has declared corporations or any association of people as people. Just give, it just gives them the same First Amendment rights as people. Well, now, you said you're giving, and my, my response to that, my repose to that, is that that's also a little too broad, in that it is giving them a specific aspect of their behavior is recognized as being the same as a person, and that is their right to express themselves on political matters, well, whether it be through speech or through money. So in that one specific case, it's saying that a group of people can come together and express their political opinions, either verbally or through money, in the same way that an individual can do that. So but a group of people are not an individual. The Constitution right. does not give rights to, to, to groups of people, specifically groups of people who are, who are created by the state. They're a fictional organization. They have no, they have no body. That's what, that's what we object to. And, it's, and, and, and because of that, they have totally changed our entire political landscape. That's the activism there. Corporations are not people. They shouldn't be given the same rights as people. And, and that's a fact. At least well, it, is again, it, it gets to a very specific function here. It's not... Corpor you know, it's not corporations or unions having all the same rights as an individual. It gets to a very specific thing, which is their right, according to the Constitution, as it's been interpreted, 
to express their opinion on politics and to do so with money. And uh, that's not a general say, statement that they have the same right as a person. They don't have a right to get married. I mean, a corporation can't marry another corporation. You know yeah, what I mean? Sure they can. It's called a merger. They do it all the time. Uh, I, I guess so. But it's not, a, how do, it's not the same thing as an individual getting married. I know. And the point is, I'm making, pass that up. Yeah, I'm making the point that in one specific case, freedom of speech, uh, the group of people have the same right as an individual. They have a right to speak collectively. And if you're going to stretch that into saying that specifically a corporation, why you're singling them out and not other associations is interesting, but if you want to do it that way, fine, that they have the same right as an individual to express themselves politically. I disagree. I don't think that groups of people have the same rights as, as individuals. Okay. If, if groups of people want to express themselves politically, they can all stand up and, and each of them donate, but not as a corporation. A corporation is a fictitious entity. It's not a human being. It should not have First Amendment rights. Well, none of these things are human beings. They're organizations. Well, that's true. And a corporation, just like a union or just like anything else, is an organization, and you know you could call it fictitious if you want. It's well, it is. But, I mean, well, I mean, in the same way, union is a fictitious thing. That's too. right. I mean, they are. So file a fictitious form. business you know, statement. That's, that's what the organization do. of women is fictitious. That's true. Right? So fine. I mean, the point is that it's an assemblage of people that has been recognized as such by the state. And that uh, they're expressing their political opinion. No, now, the argument, the no. argument being made in in uh, in in uh, Citizens United is that that speech, that form of speech, where they have an organized means of expressing it, is recognized under the right to assemble, and yep. that it goes back to the days of the founding when. You had groups of people who would get together and and submit petitions to the government. It, it, I think it kind of started in Massachusetts, actually. Um, in a sense, the uh, in Philadelphia in 1773, in response to the original Tea Party, you had a group of people who got together in a bar in and they formed the first Continental Congress. That was an organization. And as such, they began to express their political opinion in an organized manner. They weren't elected yet to do it. In fact, they didn't, there wasn't an election for another two years. And there wasn't a government to regulate them either. Well, that they, was the point. Right. But the point is that it's a tradition that goes back and that it's something that oh. is generally recognized as, if you will, an inherent right. No, it's not. Corporations do not have inherent rights. Unions do not have inherent rights. Nonprofits do not have inherent rights. They're fictitious creations of the state. They have no rights. Well, no, they, they don't well, they have. They do now, but I disagree. They, they with don't you. have certain inherent rights, but but one of the rights that I think that they do have, and you could argue it based upon the um, that decision uh, going back, is they have a right to express their political opinions. Well, and, and you, you and I disagree. And they right don't have now, the right. They don't have other rights that people have, and no one's saying that they do. Well, you and you and I disagree, and, and right now the court's on your side. We have to take a break, and we have a guest waiting online. Right. Okay. So we'll take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the national debt and economic growth. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.
We're back with Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're, we're being broadcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network on Cyber Station USA and on our radio affiliates. You can be part of this conversation. You can email your questions in, and we'll read them on the air at uh, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call in, 424-675-6806. And this segment is brought to you by our great sponsor, Barton Publishing. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. And don't forget when you uh, go to Barton Publishing to put fairness in the coupon code. Chuck, uh, we have a guest uh, waiting online. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest is David Barker. He's the founder of Longwave Dynamics, the publisher and editor of Longwave Dynamics Letter and uh, of the book Jubilee on Wall Street. David, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Um, David, I I haven't had a chance to read the book, but um, I understand that you have uh, have been with the Federal Reserve and um, you have some opinions with regard to the present condition of the national debt and how that is affecting positively or negatively economic growth in this country. Well, yes. I mean, I my view is that the federal budget situation is uh is is really a disaster. Uh we're looking at some serious problems. Uh and uh you know, we we essentially owe more uh than we're able to pay. Mhm. And so is that does that mean that according to President Obama in his State of the Union address in 2009, he stated that the present state of our national debt is unsustainable. Yes, that's right. And that's uh, the Congressional Budget Office uh, studies, other analysis, show that we are clearly on an unsustainable path. Uh, either uh, spending will have to be slashed at some point, or taxes will have to be significantly increased, or we are headed for a, uh, a serious financial problems. Now, why I, I want to get into a little bit of background in the national debt. We've always had a national debt in this country going all the way back to Alexander Hamilton. I think it was one or two years during the Jackson administration that there was no national debt. So this isn't an issue of whether we should have a national debt. The question right. is why it has <clears throat> expanded to the degree it has. I think that it's safe to say that it began a, a massive expansion in the mid-1960s with the Great Society Program, and it's just blown up ever since. Uh, The last year of the Bush administration, of course, saw the top fund, which was a huge expansion, and then President Obama again doubled it with the uh, stimulus fund. Where is all this money going to, anyways? Well, um, oh, I mean, it's going to sustain uh, federal spending because we're spending far more every year than we're taking in in tax revenue. I mean, you know, the debt really was was at its high point right after World War II, and then was paid down gradually, and the national debt as a percentage of GDP declined with some, you know, ups and downs over a long period of time, um, then increased pretty dramatically during the uh, Reagan administration, although back in those days, uh, the, the debt was often not really measured appropriately and um, was not nearly the kind of problem uh, that it is today. Now, you say that the reason we have a debt is because, obviously, our federal government is spending more than it's taking in in tax revenues. Um, Shouldn't it be a means to ensure that the federal government operate within its means is a sort of a pay-by-as-you-go system where they do not go above uh, what, what they raise in taxes? Well, 
probably the best situation would be if the government had enough discipline to run surpluses during good years and then run deficits during bad years. Uh, that would be just fine. Uh, then over the long run, uh, government debt would not increase as a fraction of GDP. And as you say, there may be some level of debt that's reasonable, just as most businesses have some level of debt that they maintain. But if that level of debt is continually increasing you know, as a fraction of total, of, of, of total government, uh, of the size of the national economy, uh, then you've got a real problem. And now we have a situation where the, the national debt is at an unprecedented level. Our bond rating has been decreased internationally. Our balance of trade is, is, at, an unlev- is, an un- is at an unprecedented level in the negative. And uh, how do we tackle this problem? I mean, people may think this doesn't right. mean anything. I've heard people in this program say, oh, it's not a big deal. This is all right. no. no. No, it's not quite true that it's at unprecedented levels. As I said, the mm-hmm. debt was was a bit higher than it is now as a fraction of GDP at the end of World War II. But at that then after World War II, uh, you know, some spending was reduced, uh, taxes were increased, or, or you know, tax revenue was very high, and uh, so that debt was was paid down over time, not in not not in actual dollars, but as a fraction of the national economy. So the debt right. grew more slowly than the economy did. But what the only the only real way to the only way to solve the problem is to either get more revenue or spend less money. Uh, you know that's or uh, the other option, of course, is to inflate it away. Um, another way to deal with debt is to run you know high rates of inflation which reduce the real value of that debt because someone who someone who lends money to the US government they're lending a fixed number of dollars and if we have a lot of inflation that erodes the real value of that obligation. Right, I've heard that suggested on this program also which is to say that we basically let the Federal Reserve start printing money and right, uh, which, right. which reduces the value of the dollar, it reduces savings, right, right. it raises rates, it raises it actually raises cost of production and it raises the cost of goods and services without necessarily raising people's salaries, especially on fixed income. Right. That's kind of right. what no, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but I mean, inflation is essentially a tax, right? It's a, it's a mm-hmm. government profits from it by essentially taxing people's uh, money balances, and uh, so. It's just another way uh, of dealing with uh, the deficit or the, or the large debts, it, which is just another way to ra- uh, raise revenue for the government. Now, uh, presidential candidate Ron Paul has suggested that um, the way to to do this is to uh, rescind the Federal Reserve. Um, he says go back to a gold standard, and I'm not sure I agree with that, but either way, he's calling for a monetary system right. that in which Congress directly issues currency, uh, without right. putting it, bonding it as debt at the Federal Reserve, which is then sold on Wall Street, and to actually have a, an interest-neutral dollar that is a direct proportion to the amount of money that the economy needs. Right. Well, I, I really think that's a different issue. I mean, now, now the Federal Reserve is sort of the central planner for our monetary system, and there there are certainly arguments you know, both ways on that, whether we ought to have a central bank or shouldn't have a central bank. But even if we did not have a central bank, uh, the federal, if the federal government 
borrowed a lot of money and spent more money than it brought in, it would have the same debt problem. Now, the, the, you know, the problems are related in certain ways, but really uh, the problem is more simple, I, I think, than bringing in the issue of the Federal Reserve. It's simply a matter of whether the federal government over the long run is going to spend more money uh, than it takes in. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. And thank you for being with us, uh, David. Sure. Uh, Thanks thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, I want to make sure I'm understanding uh, this. Um, I have a chart in front of me from the OMV, which is the national debt graph by the president. And it shows that under Roosevelt, um, this is from 1929-2009, the national debt went to 120% of GDP, and then it fell under Truman. It fell under right. Eisenhower. It fell right. under Kennedy. It fell under LBJ. It continued right. to fall under Nixon. Uh, under Nixon. It uh, continued to fall under Carter, although not nearly as much. And then when Carter is Re- when it sort of bottoms out, right? Yeah. And then when Reagan came in, it skyrocketed again to 1989. Right. And then uh, Clinton came in. It fell under Clinton. Bush came in and it skyrocketed again, and with Obama, it's continuing up. So is it that about what you understand? Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, I just wanted to make uh, make sure about that. Now, um, now Reagan, and again, that's as a percentage of the economy. Of GDP, yeah. Right. Um, now Reagan came in and said he was going to uh, balance the budget, and of course he didn't. Uh, right. Bush came in and said that he was going to cut one trillion from the debt over the next four years, and inc- and actually he did just the opposite. And during that time, between uh, the past 20 years, 12 of those years have actually have we've seen Republican Congresses who have consistently produced larger budgets than uh, Democratic Congresses. So I, I, I'm not quite sure. Well, now why. of course we had a Republican. Of course we had a Republican Congress during those years when uh, when when Clinton was president. Yeah. Uh, so true. I mean, it sort of goes yeah. goes 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 both ways sometimes. Yeah. Which is an argument for checks and balances if there ever was right. one. Right. Right. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, um, that's true. Well, what this tells me is that it it doesn't seem to matter a lot which party is in office uh, right. as to whether the debt goes up or down. Now, is there any kind of a of, of an indicator you can give me as to why debt goes up under some presidents and why it goes down under a lot of other presidents? Well, I think a lot of it is 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 luck, really. You know, sometimes you simply have a strong economy. Uh, president Clinton was fortunate to be president at a time when military expenditures were were coming down a bit, uh, because we were coming out of the Cold War, and we had the Internet bubble, which generated huge uh, capital gains for people and a lot of revenue uh, coming into the uh, federal government. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, reduced, you know, essentially actually created a surplus for, uh, or came very close to creating a surplus for uh, a short period of time. It did actually. And uh, yeah, there was small surplus, if I'm remembering right, for yeah. uh, for a year or two, right? And so, you know, other presidents are unfortunate, uh, you know, to be uh, uh, president during you know more difficult economic times. I think that probably explains a lot more than you know the. Uh, you know the the ideology uh, that uh, the party in power has. Okay, um, getting back to the central question here, what is the mechanism that relates debt to growth? Well, that's sure. Um, so economic growth is, you know, how fast our economy, how fast our national income is increasing. The source of economic growth is really 
techno technological change, increases in productivity. Um, our machines, we figure out ways to you know, create better machines and make the machines that we have work better. We figure out ways that each individual worker can produce more with every hour of labor. And the more we do it, I'm sorry? We, we've been doing right. that dramatically, yeah. Well, but less dramatically than in the past. Hmm. See, that's the interesting okay. thing, that um, total, what economists call total factor productivity, in other words, productivity of machines and people, increased very rapidly from the end of World War II until about 1973. But from 1973 until now, that growth has been much slower. Hmm. Um, and if you look over the past 12 years since the year 2000, uh, it's been you know, quite slow. Um, so we don't really know whether that's a long-term trend uh, or whether we're sort of in a temporary downturn in productivity growth. But it seems to me that it makes sense to be cautious and assume that growth, productivity growth will not be as rapid in the, pa in the future as it has been in the past and to plan the federal government's budget accordingly. But no one does that. If you look at any of the candidates running for president or the current administration, they assume much more rapid economic growth than what we've had over the past 12 years. Uh, you know, the Congressional Budget Office study assumes something like 2.2% you know, GDP growth, 1.3%, uh, uh, I think, uh, productivity growth. Um, you know, that's in line with the average over the past 50 years, but not in line with, uh, you know, what we see over the past uh, 10 years. Um, all of the other presidential candidates, uh, you know, assume you know, dramatic, uh, you know, rapid economic growth because they say, oh, well, once I'm president, I'll reform the regulatory system and I'll introduce right. tax changes, you know, and so the economy will boom. Well, it might not. And it's probably you know reasonable to plan for that possibility. Well, um, the New York Federal Reserve Bank has published a chart um, with U.S. Department of Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics on uh, on uh, output consumption and labor compensation, and and their chart on output per hours, which is uh, I think what we're talking about here, shows a steady progression from 1947 to 2005 uh, without any real dips at all and without any slowing. Are you saying that from 2005 to 2012 it has slowed? Yeah. Okay. Now, there are they lots of adjustments. Now, now, that's a, right. It's, there are different series that you can use mm -hmm. um, for this. Probably the best one to look at is a series that's put out uh, by an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, and that looks at what we're calling total factor productivity and adjusting for you know, adjusting for, you know, how much unemployment there is, adjusting for, you know, all kinds of other factors. And yeah. measured that way, productivity growth. Now, and, and you're right, productivity has been increasing. You're absolutely right. If you look at that chart, you see productivity increasing. But the rate of growth has slowed. Yeah, right? and so, I've yes, got that absolutely. chart up now, and you're right. Yeah, like, absolutely. Every year, productivity improves. I mean, it's an amazing thing that yeah. people every year, every month, figure out better ways to do things. But the rate of growth, that's a more, you know, that's a, that's a trickier thing. That, that has slowed, and it's that rate of growth, uh, really, that's, uh, that's the key variable uh, when we're looking forward at the federal budget situation. Okay. Um, now, in terms of the debt, though, it, the, when, we say, when we say debt, what, what we're really talking about is bonds. 
that the United States bonds that have been sold, correct? Well, now that's an interesting point. So, yes, conventionally, the, when we talk about the national debt, we're talking about bonds that are issued by the government. But our government also has a lot of other obligations besides those bonds. So, in particular, uh, the entitlement programs, Medicare and Social Security, those programs make all kinds of promises to people, and they don't have the revenue to support those promises. And a recent study by the Treasury Department looks tries to calculate what the uh, you know what those all of those obligations add up to, uh, and if you look at the shortfall between the future expected benefits to be paid out and the future expected revenue, it's far larger than the national debt measured in terms of just the bonds that are issued. Okay, well, when you talk about the national debt, though, I I assume you're talking about the national debt, not um, future obligations. Am I right? Well, so that's about $15 trillion is the, yeah, that, the national debt in bonds. Right. Uh, how how right. many of those bonds are actually owned by Americans and American institutions? You know, it's a fairly large percentage, um, and I can't, don't recall off the top of my head what okay. that is, but it's it is majority, a fairly large percentage. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, because I understand that China actually uh, only owns 12% of our debt now. That's that sounds about right, right. Yeah. And then there's uh, you know Europeans and other countries, but yes, a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is owed to uh, uh, you know to Americans, to American banks. To, that's right. So which brings me back to my question of of the the mechanism between high levels of debt and low levels of economic growth, or is there such a mechanism? Well, you know, economists have looked at that, and they there there does seem to be. Um, a, a point where there, there's uh, some economist by, uh, economist by the name of uh, Rogoff who wrote a book recently called This Time It's Different. Um, excellent. And uh, as a co-author that I'm uh, forgetting, uh, Reinhardt. Uh, um, and um, they, uh, they argue that when debt reaches a certain level, it seems to have negative effects on economic growth. That when debt exceeds something like you know, 100% of GDP, uh, that uh, you you often see, you know, pro- economic problems. People start to worry whether that debt is really going to be paid off, and so they back off on making investments because they think there may be future economic problems. But the link is not a is not a clear and direct one uh, between the levels of debt and economic growth. Well, I, uh, to put it, bring it down in more simple terms to sort of get out of the weeds here. I was under the assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when a country, particularly the United States, is carrying a high level of debt to uh, or debt ratio to GDP, that reduces its ability to make investments in education, scientific research, infrastructure, things of that nature. Is, is that the case? Well, you know, that's not the case for the United States right now because the U.S. can essentially borrow as much as it wants, even though we have tremendous levels of debt. Uh, we're, the rest of the world is still willing to lend us money. So our government could raise a tremendous amount of money if it wanted to and spend it on and, and invest it. Yeah, I mean, it, it could do that. Um, now, whether it should or not is a different question, uh, you know, because that would put the government in an even worse situation in the long run. There's also a question of whether government investments are as productive as private investments. I would argue that generally they're not that when government invests money, it tends to waste it on politically popular programs. When businesses invest it, they look very carefully at whether these investments are really going to give a, a positive return in the future. Of course, half of all new businesses fail, which, uh, 
Well, what, that's right. But yeah. but that's part of the process of figuring out what's productive and what's not. Government right. agencies don't fail. So when government agencies make investments that are that are ridiculous, they stay around forever. Uh, and that's why government investment tends to be unproductive. When businesses make unproductive investments, they go out of business. And so, you know, we learn and we, we shift resources to more productive things. Okay, a point well taken there. Well, the investments I, I was referring to were, were more fundamental and long-term uh, in education to make sure that four, mm-hmm. six, eight, ten years from now we have a, uh, a workforce that can compete internationally in scientific right. research, you know, like the National Science Foundation, NIH, et cetera. That we are still I, generating I, more patents, and, uh, which right. lead to things like iPads and, and also right. an infrastructure so our roads and our ports can actually su- can support right. uh, robust businesses. Right. Right. And, and studies of government spending have shown that you know support for you know direct high-level research is one of the highest return investments that governments make. Um, although those are a fairly small percentage of right. you know the overall federal budget. Right. Um, and they're also the, long-term. The, right. So that, that's not, you know, the, the things that are causing problems for the U.S. are not really those kinds of spending. It's the exploding entitlement spending, uh, which, you know, again, we've made all these promises, and we do not have the revenue to, uh, to fund them. But when you say exploding entitlement expenditures, do you also include uh, corporate welfare, too? Well, corporate welfare, um, you know, usually when you look at what people talk about as corporate welfare, you're usually talking about tax incentives. Um, you're usually not talking about the government, you know, writing checks uh, to companies. Although there and are those too. As there, are, there are some, yeah. but they're small. You know, usually when you look at these lists of the most egregious corporate welfare uh, things, it's some kind of tax break. Well, you know, so that's making the argument that, you know, taxes ought to be increased, that the level of taxes on businesses in the U.S. is, is too high. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, the corporate tax burden in the U.S. compared to other countries, I, I think it's hard to make the argument that uh, our corporate tax level is, uh, you know, is, uh, is too low. But, when, but um, now, when you look at the taxes corporations actually pay, uh, it's, it's hard still, to make the argument that they're too high. Well, it's still, you know, compared to, you know, compared internationally, um, you know, I don't think that they're, you know, that they're certainly, I don't think that's out of line uh, and too low. And when then, you know, the other argument on that, of course, is complexity, um, that you're saying, you know, the tax code gets so complicated, businesses get these tax breaks, uh, you know, and that's what's called corporate welfare. But simplifying the tax code is extremely difficult because every business is in a different situation. Every industry has a different situation. Applying an across-the-board rate would destroy some industries and profit others. That's why the tax code gets complicated over time. And unfortunately, that's a political process, and uh, you can't take the politics out of it. So the tax code always tends to get uh, more complicated over time. Which is why I think everybody agrees that we need to simplify the tax the tax code too. But, well, but uh, when I we do, uh, uh, right. Chuck, we're we're coming up on 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 a break here, so I want to take the break and then give it back to you. Okay, Patrick. Uh, we're, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we are broadcast on Block Talk Radio on. Um, our radio affiliates, and on CyberStation USA. We are talking with David Barker, former Federal Reserve uh, Bank economist. We're talking about the relationship of debt to economic growth, and as we always do, we have gone somewhat afield, and we'd love to have – actually, we have a couple of emails here from our uh, from our listeners, and when we come back, maybe we'll read to them. Uh, Chuck, you want to uh, take it from here? Thank you, Patrick. I think that what what Patrick is talking about 
David, you did address, which is the actual phenomena of uh, corporate welfare, which is investment in uh, in research and education. A tax break is not welfare. A tax break is just telling a person or a group of people that they can keep more of that which they created. But the issue of the, the national debt from administrations from World War II to present, uh, you have to look at it in the context of the times. I think that it's safe to say that in the years following World War II, in the 1950s and 60s, the economy was much broader. We uh, had not had the level of free trade yet, which uh, exported American industry and American low-tech companies overseas. We had uh, generally a uh, just a more diverse economy and a more and there was more jobs, which meant that there was more income tax. And by the way, of course, corporations pay a great deal of taxes if you include income tax um, by their people. But I think that when you say that, like for the 1960s during Johnson, there was not an increase in the national debt, it should be pointed out that that's because Johnson took the uh, Social Security Trust Fund and apparently some other funds and pension funds and bonded it as debt and used it to pay for the Vietnam War. Uh, obviously, once Reagan came around, there was no more money in there. So uh, well, they, they resorted to borrowing. Yeah, but you know the economy was growing very rapidly at that time, also. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and tax rates were very high, and uh, you know, so we were, you know, so so the federal government was bringing in uh, was was bringing in quite a bit of revenue, and so the uh, you know the amount that was being added you know to the debt was was reasonable compared to the rate of growth of the of the economy. Well, that's right. In other but words, then, the economy was much more – it was much broader. It was much more diverse. Well, but yeah, in, I mean, there in today's are economy, right. do you think that it's wise in, in any practical sense to raise taxes? I mean, we just saw a report recently which indicates that almost 50 percent of Americans pay no income tax federally. Um, should we be raising taxes? I mean, we had a guest on yesterday who was very wealthy and who was saying he wants to pay more taxes. Uh, because he's rich. I mean, of course, nothing stops him from writing a check to the federal government if he really wants to do it. <laughs> right. But putting well, that aside. You know, the point, I mean, the point that you just brought up, that half of the people in the country pay no income taxes, I guess would be an argument for raising taxes. Maybe we ought to tax that half that isn't uh, being taxed now. Well, but I don't I know about that, but, I mean, doesn't that take money out of the – uh, sure. You know, out of the economy, which sure. in, in a sense contracts the economy. Now, I know sure. the people are saying that the rich are keeping their money in a bank account, or they're not. They're not putting it under their pillows. But even so, it's still being invested into production. It's still being consumed. It's still right. resulting in a broader capital accumulation on on the domestic level, which can only improve the economy. Right. Well, I would put it this way: if we continue to spend like we're spending now. We have to have higher taxes. If we can cut spending, I think it would be great to lower taxes. But in the long run, if we keep this level of spending, it has to be paid for somehow. So right. I think the real question is spending. And I agree with you about the, the negative effects of taxation. I think they're huge and underappreciated. I mean, in my you know, a business that I run, uh, a lot of the decisions that I make are based on the tax code. Uh, you know, when taxes are, are raised in certain ways, you know, I cut back on investment. Um, but the, the sad fact is that our spending has to be paid for. And uh, if we, uh, so what we really need to do is bring that spending level down uh, so that we don't have to increase taxes. But it's so difficult to do it, and there's so much demagoguery around attempts to right. do it. 
right. in that there were accusations that it's going to, you know, people are going to be starving on the street and, and, and whatnot. Uh, isn't there a way that, I mean, and, and also there's this idea that it's impossible to do this, so we might as well forget about it. Uh, is there, what could be reduced? I mean, in terms of, I mean, I think that we could point to some oh. federal agencies. The Defense Department had a huge boondoggle recently with this this unfunctionable aircraft. But, I mean, in the real sense, what can be reduced that has a meaningful reduction without hurting all of the basic services that we want people to have? Well, it will be painful. Um, it, 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 it is not, it, will, it, it won't be easy to cut federal spending. There will be damage done. There will be people who will be, you know, very upset and hurt by it. But it has to happen. Uh, we simply can't afford the level of spending that we're that we're doing. But the point you made before, it may be politically impossible to do. It really might be. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talked see, about you know various yeah. uh, public officials. We mentioned the governor of Florida. There are others who have tried to cut spending in their governments, and they're very unpopular. It's not right, it's right. not politically popular to to do this. But yet, look, the it's Party people candidates. who are willing to be patriotic and, and look at the future and take a look at the realities of the economy, who know that in the long run, it'll be a good thing. But are they willing to, and are they courageous enough to stand up and take the abuse now, which for doing it and and, and for le- really leading to pain now? Right. Uh, you know, I doubt no it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I look at say Tea Party candidates. Um, who were running in 2010, a lot of them were attacking their Democratic opponents uh, by saying that they were going to cut Medicare, right? Um, so, you know, you often, a lot of you know, Republican candidates have been doing this, saying that, you know, attacking the Obama's health care plan because it cuts Medicare. And that's, right. it, it works. You know, Republicans win with those arguments. Um, but what it means is that no matter who gets elected, uh, spending is likely it, spending is very unlikely to decrease. Well, of course, Medicare is something that is paid for by people. Uh, the FICA yes, tax, but but not enough. Uh, the level of taxes, taxes right. right? I mean, right, the right. promises that Medicare makes are far greater than the revenue that it brings in. I know, but it could probably be reformed without cutting it by getting rid of some of these mandates and by getting rid of maybe some competitive bidding, which is something that both parties have resisted. Patrick, why don't we right. do an email? Well, getting okay. rid of the man, getting rid of mandates would be eliminating certain benefits for certain people, and they would be very upset about that, and that's going to make it very difficult politically. Right. We have um, a number of emails here. We've got a lot. Why don't I start with with a long one from California here? Um, the Central Valley Project, which is a federal water system in California that was supposed to help destitute farmers who got caught in the Great Depression is now funneling $416 million worth of subsidized and free water to corporate fat cats at the expense of the rest of us. According to the Environmental Working Group, the top 10% of all farms are getting 67% of the water. The average farm gets $350,000 a year, and 27 farms in the state receive a subsidy of $1 million or more a year. If this isn't corporate welfare, I don't know what is. And that's from Reverential in Fresno, which, of course, is in the middle of all of this. Mm-hmm. Any comments on that? <laughs> that sounds like a great example. And, yes, there sounds are like examples. Of, about too. Sure. I mean, there certainly are examples of what people call corporate welfare. Uh, the only point I was making was that most of those – now, and there are 
plenty of examples like that, although most of those are tax breaks on certain things, which you can think of a little differently in some cases, in some cases, in some cases not. Well, let me move on to another one. And, uh, it's that uh, This is from Ronald Stacy in Ypsilanti. If the U.S. can keep borrowing, why don't we? We can use the cash for roads and schools and to rebuild the mess this country's in. Yeah, great question. Um, I think the answer is because we won't be able to forever. Um, at the moment, Europe is in some financial turmoil, uh, and so money is fleeing to the United States. Uh, China uh, is generating a lot of wealth, uh, that, and it needs a safe place to invest it. But uh, growth is apparently slowing in China. Uh, Europe might get uh, its uh, situation under control, and investors around the world may eventually, will eventually start saying, wait a minute, uh, how are they going to pay all this money back? Uh, historically, when you look at episodes of countries borrowing too much, uh, the end tends to come fairly suddenly. Uh, investors wake up to the situation, uh, interest rates go up, and it becomes more difficult to borrow. So I think we ought to stop borrowing uh, so that we avoid a situation like that happening. Right. The other thing that's an unforeseen consequence is that the American dollar, which since the Bretton Woods Agreement has been the world reserve, could be taken away as the world reserve uh, and could be replaced with a boutique of, of other currencies, including the yuan. And if that happens, then uh, the, uh, there's going to be a huge raise in American prices and there's going to be a flooding of, of, the, of our domestic market of American dollars. Well, yes, we benefit from the dollar being the world's reserve currency, although that situation is pro it's probably inevitable that that will change right. eventually. Uh, quickly, a station ID. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and we are talking with David Barker about uh, national debt and national growth, and we're taking your emails. Uh, an email from Cindy Bellagio in SF, I guess she means San Francisco. Uh, she asks, isn't the interest on the debt the hugest piece of government payment? It's not the largest at the moment, but it is very large and uh, growing uh, and will grow dramatically if interest rates increase. Um, I forget the uh, exact percentage, and I don't have that in front of me, but um, if it, the, the, the big worry is that uh, that interest rates might increase. Uh, you know, they're at extremely low levels by historical standards right now. And if the world economic situation changes and those rates go up, then that interest burden is going to be uh, very, very large. Well, it goes up, too, if we borrow more money, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, and then we have, um, can we cut the biggest part of our spending, the wars in the military, and use that money to pay down the debt? Well, that depends on your view of how useful defense expenditures are. Uh, we spend you know, more on defense than all of our potential adversaries combined, uh, far more. And um, you know, perhaps we spend more than we need to. Perhaps there's some level of security that uh, you know, we want to buy and, and, and know more. But uh, others, you know, look at the world situation and say, you know, we need to spend even more money on defense. So that's a difficult uh, question. But it is a very large amount of money. And uh, if we could make significant cuts to the defense budget, our financial situation would be, uh, would be somewhat better. 
Well, I want to ask you about that. Uh, Congress and, and the Defense Department over the past 50 years have colluded in a process of seeing to it that the majority of the Defense Department budget gets scattered around into virtually every congressional district. So if we mm -hmm. cut back, doesn't that mean we're going to reduce the amount of uh, people working for the Defense Department, defense contractors, jobs in general, and money flowing into communities all over the country, which will further depress our, our economic growth? Sure. If we cut government spending, there will be temporary pain. Um, any government program that we cut, you know, somebody, somebody benefits from every government program. And any time we cut something, it's going to cause temporary pain. But that spending is not sustainable in the long run. So, if, you know, it, taking some temporary uh, economic pain for a long-run economic gain, I think, makes sense. But, of course, that's, you know, I, I think voters seem to be uh, uh, indicating that their preferences are different than that. Oh, and, by the way, so interest is only about 6% of total U.S. federal spending. Uh, at the moment, but that could grow dramatically if interest rates go up. Okay. Uh, I'm just following up on, on that particular email. I'm still thinking about the Defense Department because I know last year, uh, over the last three years, the Defense Department threw away $33 billion worth of excess equipment, about $4 billion of which was actually new and unused and excellent uh, condition. <laughs> now, that's sure. a huge amount of waste. I mean, $33 billion, you could run the L.A. school district. Uh, right. or the Boston School District. On the other hand, a lot of people were employed in creating that $33 billion <laughs> worth of equipment, and probably a lot of people were employed in um, um, disposing of it. So it sounds like we're caught in the vice that unless we keep spending, we're going to depress the economy, and right. if we stop spending, we're going to depress the economy. Right. But again, that's a long-term, short-term uh, issue. If we cut that spending, we have a short we have short term economic problems, but those resources can be deployed into more profitable areas. So, in, if instead of making military equipment that we throw away, we make factories or you know educate people or something like that that has a long term payoff, we'll be better off in the long run. But just like in our own personal lives, uh, you know, making short term sacrifices leads to long-term gains, but those short-term sacrifices are very painful, and people avoid them. Well, what do you think of the president's uh, general policy of, um, of cutting long-term debt, but in uh, the, the immediate present, uh, spending federal money to, to uh, generate more jobs? Well, the idea, right, right. I mean, the, the idea is that our economy is temporarily depressed, so now is the wrong time uh, to be making spending cuts. Um, that's fine. Uh, that's a reasonable point. The problem is that I don't think that the long-term budget cuts are ever going to be realized. I think that you know politicians are great at pushing these things off into the future and saying, oh, yes, I'm all for deficit reduction next year you know, or the year after that. And so what we get is year after year, people making the same argument. Oh, now is not the time to do it. And so it never happens. Well, David, wouldn't it be um, – wouldn't some public policies put in place that would help alleviate some of the pain of cutting the deficit, such as um, developing pro-business policies domestically that would favor American industry, American investment internally, capital investment rather than overseas – maybe some trade policies that would help encourage the development of American industry, and, and any other policies, federal and state, that would encourage investment inside the United States. 
I mean, that seems to me that would help alleviate or at least, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the disproportion the, the, that, that would happen with the cuts. You know, it's sort of like at the end of the porcelain buggy industry, there were people that lost their jobs, and mm-hmm. they actually, in Massachusetts, they tried to get the state to finance them because they didn't want to lose their jobs. And there were some areas of the state that actually went through a depression, particularly up in Amesbury. But yet the car industry came in, and it uh, picked right. up the flack. So, you know, I think right. that if, if with the right public policies and also a cut in taxes rather than a stimulus package, which creates more debt and which allows the government to give money away to their friends, to cut taxes or to have a, a uh, moratorium on tax increases at least for a year allows the same exact stimulative effect, except the difference is that the the, the money stays in the hands of those who created the money, and they invest it without the government picking favorites in a way that helps actually grow their businesses because they're accountable to doing that. Yeah, well, I think there's probably no way to avoid that short-term pain. Um, yes, the kind of programs that you are talking about could help, but it will take time for them to help. And, you know, when we when we talk about cutting government programs and implementing other programs to help offset that, we're talking about a period of disruption, and disruption is going to cause, uh, you know, problems for people. Um, so I, I think there's probably no way to avoid the issue that it's going to be difficult and it's going to be painful to cut government spending, which is why politicians probably won't do it. Um, now, as far as taxes, you know, cutting taxes versus uh, spending uh, increases for stimulus, well, yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, one thing, and, and they've done that in a sense, right, with the uh, payroll tax cut. But the payroll tax cut is kind of interesting. It, it's a huge uh, cost uh, in government revenue with probably very little long-term gain. Um, you know, everyone knows that the uh, payroll tax cut is supposed to be temporary, so people are saving it instead of spending it because they know this is not an ongoing source of income. And, the, and, and our banks are piling up reserves uh, because they're worried about lending. And so that money that's being saved, put in banks, is really not being put to much productive use. So the Social Security and Medicare programs are being starved of revenue. Of course, I realize that that, you know, it's all in the same pot. They all, uh, you know, take money from each other, and that it doesn't really matter whether a particular tax is uh, associated with one program or not. But it's starving the federal government of revenue and probably not getting a whole lot of uh, of bang in return. David, can I ask you a follow-up on, on that? Uh, sure. Uh, Chuck and, and other conservatives uh, argue that we should lower taxes or eliminate taxes on, on corporations so that the owners of those corporations can keep more of the wealth that their employees create for them so that they'll then invest it. But uh, they have been given uh, loopholes. We have essentially lowered taxes on corporations through loopholes. They haven't been investing that money in the United States. They've been investing that money in China and in other places well, around the world. Is there any way we can force them to invest it here? Well, some is invested here and some is invested overseas. I mean, I, I think I really think it's best for the world if capital moves where it's most productive. You know, other countries are investing in the America? United States. <laughs> well, other countries are investing in the United States. In fact, we get a huge volume of investment. You know, one of the one of the um, things that happens when we run a trade deficit is that other countries have lots of dollars and they invest them in the United States. Has it been a net, um, yeah, if, net gain? 
it is a net gain. And if we say, Americans, you can't invest overseas, well, countries around the world are going to say, okay, fine, we won't invest in America. And we will um, you know, cut off the flow of investment capital that moves around the world and, and, and creates the most productivity that it can, and uh, we'll, we'll really impoverish the whole world and ourselves. Okay. I mean, it was the same, you know, same sort of thing as when we uh, imposed tariffs uh, during the 1930s. We, you know, had a, a, a bad effect on international trade, uh, which uh, really hurt everyone. Okay. Chuck, I just got the uh, the 90-second limit. Yep. Uh, I mean, David, I want to thank you for joining us. David Barker, your, your book is available in uh, major bookstores, Jubilee on Wall Street. Thanks so much, uh, David. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you, uh, David. Patrick will be off tomorrow and Monday. We'll be back Tuesday, God willing, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be running best of programs, I assume. Yes, we will, Friday and Monday. So we shall return, God willing, Tuesday, 1 p.m. Check out our website, fairnessradio.com, where we have various articles posted. And, of course, our archives are there as well if you really have an urge to listen to us and you want to hear something. Patrick, I'll talk to you Tuesday. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Chuck. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Ten seconds.